Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. <laughs> this is Michael Mann, and I ride with Extended Clip. Welcome to Extended huh. Clip. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. And we are back for the third leg of the Extended Clip Reunion Tour. Nobody make any third leg jokes. Oh. That is, it's off the table. I, I was, I was going to make, done. I literally was going to make a marathon joke, <laughs> but you know, and I guess that is a, like the, you know, this podcasting shit's a fucking marathon, man. Yeah, it's hard. If I'm, I'm going to run a 26 mile fucking race, I'm going to need a third leg. Yeah, exactly. But not in that way. I mean, like in, to help with the running. I'm going to need to, I'm going to need to get need some. Four, I'm going to need a fourth leg too. And a fifth leg. Say, like I, you know, if I'm going that long, I'm going to need to use my third third leg along the way if all you know right, what I mean. all right all right I need, I need a little something something before this race is over <laughs> jt you need to get anything out of your system before i go forward oh no no okay. this is great <laughs> i see if you didn't say no third leg jokes i literally would have just made a very normal marathon joke you know so. yeah yeah, exactly. I wouldn't have said anything at all. Oh yeah, I'm sure. We're not uh, we're not operating that fast today. We're not Yeah. So So welcome to the one after the second leg of the extended clip reunion tour. Uh this is actually gonna be the only episode, the only double feature episode that doesn't have a guest on it. Just uh, just us three original recipe boys. Uh soon though, of course, we will have our friends Evan from Jokerman, Will from Chapo, Rob from previous appearances on the podcast and being one of our friends. Um, another guest, Palma, Palma pro, pro previously of Seeking Derangements and currently of being our friend. Um, so <laughs> enjoy it while it lasts. It's just the three of us tonight. And we're talking bringing up baby in timeline A as we approach the 40s, running out of time in the 30s, you know, looking back, what's one of the best things about the 30s? The screwball comedy. So why don't we talk about one of the best ones ever? And then in timeline B, we are receding back toward Y2K, and we are now in 2003 with the great director of the 21st century, perhaps. Maybe, if not just the greatest director to debut within the 21st century. Let's talk about A Pitch It Pong Where Seth Cool's Tropical Malady from 2003. So, this uh, double feature, a couple different types of romance, you know? Mm -hmm. Sometimes love is a super annoying, loud woman, and you're a man <laughs> who's scared of women, apparently. And it's sometimes either, love uh, is, you know, just a, just a Thai soldier and a boy on a Thai farm. And sometimes there's something more than that with a tiger involved or a leopard. Who knows? Yeah, love is a jungle. You know, that's the, the theme we've learned from this one. And uh, that's the only, you know, the, the two types of love do you name right there? Those, those are the only two types of love I know. So Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, this is really right up my wheelhouse. <laughs> 
Uh, so we've talked about both of these directors on the podcast. I'm pretty sure. I actually can't think of a Howard Hawks episode we've done, but we've talked about Howard Hawks. Yeah, he's been uh, mentioned. We, you know, we don't need to go into the what's going on with these uh, guys. Born segment. in 1887. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> you know the deal. It's fucking Howard Hawks. He made a billion movies in the classic Hollywood system. He was, uh, you know probably the auteur when you're looking at how the the French were defining uh, authorship uh, within the low art of the classic Hollywood system. I mean, this is a guy who was always consistent in thematics and character motifs and uh, stylized dialogue and had his uh, repertory set of actors that he liked working with. And, you know, we're just going back to the woe for more Howard Hawks because uh, bringing a baby, man, if you haven't seen it, it's a classic, and I hadn't seen it in like four years, maybe. You know, I've seen some Hawks in the meantime and rewatched some Hawks and just easing into a warm bath with this one. It's just as good, if not better, than I remembered. It's one of the essential screwballs. After the genre had been, you know, in function for the last, uh, for the whole decade, basically, since the talkies came along, there were screwballs or screwball-esque rom-coms. And uh, this one, I feel like Hawks is just completely leaning into one of the biggest themes of it, which is the kind of deconstruction of masculinity and gender roles within these movies. Uh, a lot of them are also comedies of remarriage and divorce. Um, so <clears throat> this also gets into that with uh, the classic setup of Cary Grant being one day away from marriage. Um, and then, you know, of course, Catherine Hepburn comes in and ruins his life, uh, in the good way, the way people say ruin your life on Twitter, you know, yeah. uh, she's nice with it. Uh, <laughs> wow. Uh, I'm saying, no, like, I know. Come on. <laughs> no, no, yeah, for sure. I just... <laughs> Uh, just so we're clear on, like, you know, uh, what these characters' motives are and mm -hmm. uh, how they feel. <laughs> well, I love that aspect of it because, like, you hear him mention it, but you know, it never feels like too big of a threat, right? And he's like, "Oh, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get married tomorrow. We can't yeah. be doing this." And then, you know, he just goes along with it anyway. So who knows why? Now, just a moment, Susan. Don't think that I don't appreciate all you've done. But, oh, it was nothing, but, David. Yeah, just a moment. But there are limits to what a man can bear. Besides that, tomorrow afternoon, I'm going to get married. <laughs> what for? Well, because... Be <laughs> well, anyway, I'm going to get married, Susan, and don't interrupt. No. And he's a... I, I, I keep wanting to say paleontologist, but I guess they say zoologist in the movie. He's a bone guy. He studies He's a bone bones. guy. He loves, yeah. he loves his bones. And so, of course, you know, the, this setup, he's one day away from both completing the great you know uh fossil of a dinosaur that he's been working on for years and marrying this kind of frumpy boring woman who's helping him build dinosaurs uh, <laughs> and so of course like this is a classic you know screenwritery setup he has everything in his professional and emotional life on the line ready to get a wrench thrown in you know so who is that wrench but Catherine Hepburn and within the first two scenes, you know, she's playing his ball on the golf course. She's driving his car, uh, both of these, you know, uh, without his permission and leading him to freak out. And it's just like an immediate dressing down of his masculinity. And I think that, you know, Hawks is always someone who has these kind of masculine women characters, these like really strong women that can always like hang with the fellas, you know. Uh, and I feel like in this one, he doesn't really like... 
try too hard to make Catherine Hepburn that because Cary Grant is just like I don't want to say the gayest, but like uh, <laughs> Cary Grant in screwball yeah. mode when he is being like supposed, like seemingly attacked with the love of a woman. Yeah, uh, he's like scared of them in these totally. movies, and that's what that's what it adds such a great layer to so many of these movies is that these guys who. You know, maybe they were according to certain uh, Hollywood rumors that have persisted for decades and decades. Maybe True. they were gay, uh, and the ones who actually were like Rock Hudson, watching a rom com with Rock Hudson, and it you know totally adds another layer to it when he's like, "Ew, women," you know, yeah. like uh, straight up a hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> According to the books and, you know. Yeah, no, I mean, he was out, yeah. like, he, unlike someone like Cary Grant, who a lot of people were very convinced was. Mm-hmm. But regardless, I just think those first two interactions they have with the car and the golf ball are, like, such a great way to just dive headfirst into just dressing down his masculinity right away and going into, like, the gender role reversal kind of thing. No, yeah. I, uh, like, Howard Hawks in general, like... Whatever he was on sexually, I think I'm there for it. Like having a a broad like. Be careful, kinda... JT. Your girlfriend like listens to the podcast and like there's there's some stuff in some of these Howard Hawks movies, man. I don't I don't know if you've seen all of them. some monkey business. I'm, I'm speaking I, I'm speaking broadly here. I'm joking. Like, I'm joking. Yes, of course. But I don't know you. I uh, I don't know. As it a fat man, you want to be bullied with. You want to be bullied a little bit. And yes, it does test your sure, masculinity yeah. a bit. But I mean, not to say that at the end of the day, Cary Grant takes the reins in this because he certainly <laughs> does not. Um, but uh, I don't know. So it's uh, Hawks. I'm just going to put it at that. He understood something that I think a lot of men are going through. Yeah. And I think, you know, with like the the roles here, you know, like uh Hawks usually being like, oh, this woman's so competent at her job that she's like one of the guys. She's like one of that. This is like a whole different thing where it's like, you know, these there are these, you know, women out here operating on a very high emotional intelligence, much so, you know, much more than men, especially, you know, maybe someone like this guy who's counting his bones all day. You know what I mean? <laughs> Spending a lot of the time bone collecting. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so... You know, and it and it is like, I think, the, and that's where like kind of this classic screwball dynamic comes in. You know, it's not even just in Hawks movies; it's in like Sturges movies, etc. Where it's like, you have this woman who who knows what they want, but knows that they can't go just be super forward with it. They're gonna have to trick this guy into like you know convincing them that <coughs> she's the right one. And it's always fun to see that dynamic played with. And then you know. Like you said with the beginning, it starts like that, and that's you know that's enough. That's enough for most movies. But then you have the dynamic of baby, you know, a leopard who kind of puts this. You still have that going on, but you know, if uh, Hepburn's like the wrench in Cary Grant's life, then the baby is the wrench in the whole movie. You know what I mean? Where it's like it kind of makes it go in different directions with that, in in a very you know funny and zany way because there's a lot of gags to be had when you're chasing around a leopard in Connecticut. And uh, JT, I think, yeah, you bringing up like being bossed around a little is like, (laughs) no, it's key to like the relationships within Mm -hmm. these Hawks movies. And I think, you know, whether he's in screwball mode or in like crime slash 
you know, fellas hanging out mode, uh, like in Rio Bravo, which we of course did an episode on, uh, you know, the, the lust of Rio Bravo compared to that is like compared to this, where, you know, it's a woman ruining his life so she can marry him. Rio Bravo is like, Oh, she's like, cool she can hang with the fellas and john wayne's just like trying to get some like you know it's it's simple <laughs> as that. he's literally just trying to get some uh simple as and i i, I think hawks celebrates that like yeah. the the end of rio bravo when they're walking off and then uh you you pan up and see walter brennan out the window like goofing <laughs> off about it like uh that's, that's hawks totally celebrating that you know both love and lust can come in these roles or Love and lust uh, can appear between men and women in ways that are, you know, so far off from traditional gender roles and stuff like that. And, you know, you ask Howard Hawks that, he probably isn't going to say anything. He just says, I like a tough dame or something like that. How do you, how do you, he might not even <laughs> say that. You know? Yeah, I mean, I mean, exactly. He probably says, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> what are you talking about, kid? You read too many books. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, he's not exactly John Ford. Yeah, he's going to say, with a camera. But... Uh, <laughs> But yeah, no, I I think that that aspect of it, like, uh, we're we're not even really talking about like the text of the movie here because it's like you know it's a most people listening to this have seen the movie and know the story and mm. the beats of the story aren't worth going one by one because they all have great physical comedy within them and it's hard to talk about physical comedy on a podcast rather than you know just describing it. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly, which is pretty boring. But uh, that's like most film reviews, though. You that know? is true. I mean, we've been guilty <laughs> of it, but you know. No. Who cares? Yeah. Um, so, you know, they have these big set pieces like at the restaurant that they go to together and there's the whole, you know, purse stealing snafu and then the dress ripping and Carrie's pants ripping and, you know, them forced to be together uh, physically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's like classic screwball shit, but it kind of comes from this. Like this is such an iconic version of that trope of you know, a farce where the two romantic leads are forced to touch each other for a prolonged period of time. Oh, yeah, so at this dinner thing, she, you know, she talks to this psychiatrist dude who says uh, the love impulse in men often reveals itself in conflict, (laughs) Uh, which is, you know, obviously, like, the thesis of the movie, basically, as Cary Grant, you know, really doesn't let up on her until the last minute. Mm-hmm. Like, he just is so upset with her the whole movie. Uh, and it's just pure conflict that, you know, just completely, it's almost like a horse show. He goes so far into hatred for her that he just has to love her. Well, you know that what I always say, there's a thin line between love and hate. It's you know? true. I think you might have said it on the last podcast we Good. did. Good. I'm going to keep saying it. <laughs> but it is, it is funny how much Hepburn's like, if he... If he actually cared about his fiance, this one, this one, Heppard's fucking ruining this guy's life. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just kind of going. It's kind of reminds me, obviously, a very different type of you know feeling to it, but like kind of like those Jean Roland, uh, Jess Franco horror movies where it's like an evil woman who's like, I'm going, you know, at midnight, I'm going to turn into you know a vampire and suck your blood and the guy's like sick yeah i'm gonna stay stay around and then and 60 minutes later (laughs) you've seen a very horny movie yeah (laughs) (laughs) so i guess yeah that's the hawks kind of did it in his his own way yeah right (laughs) and like it's not like even like at the beginning of this movie like cary grant is just as like whipped or like under control by like his fiance then it's just like 
less exciting and more like by the book. Like she has to tell him like every like event and she's like a Frasier. She's really like the Frasier ex-wife here. Uh, just like who's by the book. Like, now are you referring rules. to Lilith or uh, Lilith? Yes. Okay, Lilith. Okay. Just making sure because you know, there the common misconception that Diane who left him at the altar, of course, is also an ex-wife. Um, but regardless. Also Maris. They talk about Maris. They talk a lot. about Maris a lot. You know, yeah, if you've yeah. never seen the show and it's your first time, maybe you're like, who is this Maris lady that Niles hates so much? Yeah. She must be Fraser's ex. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just left Maris. She's a real bitch. You know, they're always saying that. In there. That's exactly <laughs> the great, like wit and repartee of Fraser. Oh, that Maris. She's a real bitch. <laughs> uh, um, so they end up then at her mother's farm in Connecticut, of course, and you know there's all this money at stake because Cary Grant needs a grant, f- oh, a grant for the grant oh. uh, for the museum, and you know all this you know nonsense kind of <laughs> trivial plot stuff for uh, the bone. That, he's got this bone. Yeah, he's, he's got looking the after. bone, and uh, you know who's gonna take the bone? But uh, who loves bones? Dogs. You know, yeah. <laughs> the, the, you know what's awesome is it's the same dog from. Another Cary Grant masterpiece, The Awful Truth by Leo oh, McCary. Wow. Same yeah. dog. This is a, a romance dog. And there's another reference. Another woman who's putting him down refers to him as Jerry the Nipper. Yeah. Uh, is that... Because he drinks so much. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, quit beefing. Get right to yourself. The heat's on, Jerry. Jerry? Jerry? Ain't his name Bone? Bone? Well, of course it isn't ah, Bone. Ah, you mean to say you don't remember Jerry the Nipper? Jerry the Nipper? Make a note of that, Doc. Constable, she's making all this up out of motion pictures she's oh, seen. Oh, I thought I saw you with that red-headed skirt in a motion picture. Well, I don't want to be rude, but uh, may I have a drink? Certainly. I had three or four before I got here, but they're beginning to wear off, and you know how that is. Well, don't look at me like that. You'll like a little drink yourself. We call him Jerry the Nipper. He likes to sneak him when nobody's looking. So cute about it, too. That's that's interesting. So there might yeah, be... Yeah, so there is something in the air Multiverses connected oh, tissues. Oh, God. Multiverse Malcolm Yeah, multiverse. Oh, I shouldn't have started <laughs> it. Oh, is but, this the freaking universe where there's hot dog fingers? Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, hey, that you know, that's that type of stuff is popular nowadays. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't laugh at it. That too is hard. true. We um, are going to be leaning into the extended clip multiverse uh, very soon in order to rein in some more listeners. <laughs> we hear if you just put the word multiverse or like alternate universe in a podcast description. Um, the hit count on Spotify goes up like 4,000%. Yeah, it's true. I mean, verified this. Each podcast we do is kind of like a what if on the same episode, same double feature format. (laughs) What if three guys watched movies together? (laughs) (laughs) You know, and it's just this, this one is the alternate universe where we watch bring up baby, you know? Exactly. No, yeah, this a podcast is like your own little world that you build and you could play in, you know. But uh, uh, <laughs> bringing a baby, you, it's a, you know what I, I love um, that moment where they they both take some showers, right? Some showers yeah. are going on. Cary Grant, you know, puts on the bathrobe and then her aunt shows up yeah. in the house and she's like, he answers the door like, who are you? You know what I mean? It's <laughs> like I'm the owner of the house. Like, who are you? And then. You know, I forgot what what happens exactly, but then it end, the conflict ends. It's like, 
These aren't my clothes. Well, where are your clothes? I've lost my clothes. Well, why are you wearing these clothes? Because I just went gay all of a sudden. <laughs> I mean, I love that. The the outfits in this movie that Hepburn oh, sports are often ridiculous. Like yeah. at the dinner, she has those crazy twirly bows coming out of her hair. There's all these crazy shit. So, of course, when she sends off Cary Grant's uh, clothes to get pressed uh, on the other side of town, leaving him naked with no clothes coming out of the shower... Uh, he has to wear one of her ridiculous nightgowns. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, Cary Grant jumping up in the air saying, I just went gay all of a sudden <laughs> is just too good. <laughs> uh, also, I think the second funniest thing after that is uh, Cary Grant. Uh, of all the, like, so basically the whole crew ends up in jail toward the end. Yeah, uh, which is very, that's always very funny. Yeah, but the fact that Cary Grant got arrested for being a peeping Tom is, like, the funniest <laughs> thing ever to be. That's, anytime an old movie, like, someone gets in trouble for being a peeper, it's just the best. That's one of the yeah. easiest ways to make me laugh. I wonder, you know, might need to look up the law. Is it, like, I wonder how much time you get for peeping. <laughs> I, I feel like it's always been like very, you know, looked down upon. Yeah. Even in these liberal times, it might not be that much worse now than it was. A couple nights in the drunk tank for peeping. <laughs> Sleep it off. Look at some fellas. I guess, I guess it's worth it depending on what you're looking at, right? I don't Jesus know. Christ. I don't know. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I don't know, man. I'm sorry. Oh boy, um, JT. Any thoughts on uh, the the jail like last twenty minutes of this? Basically, well, I mean, yeah. No, I love the last twenty minutes because you finally get all these crazy personalities together in one room. And I mean, it's like Hepburn and Grant, like obviously, are the most like fleshed out. Like certainly, they're just banking on like some some of their more grand characteristics, but. Uh, I like that sometimes when you get like in a screwball, like a cast sort of reduced to like stereotypes or little tropes, like sort of like how the Simpsons like supporting cast, I feel like often is doing like sort of one note jokes like that. Like I like the uh, the Irish drunk like gardener who like when he sees the leopard he's like oh well fuck like i'm done drinking <laughs> like that's a bit that's an old timey bit that like always like just like when the drunk goes sober because they see something crazy yeah great bit that's, but that's second like, only to an old movies where someone uh, gets handed a piece of paper and they're like you know i can't read <laughs> I've seen that in like 10 different westerns and it always makes me fucking cry laughing. I, I also, yeah, it's Yeah, you just get like everyone there in like the like a pressure cooker environment and just all shouting and yelling at each other. I feel like it it ties everything together in a very successful way. Yeah. The the what do you call it? the kind of forgetful or kind of just uh daffy cop that they have in charge of everything. That that is like some classic Cox pinball type dialogue where, you know, Hepburn's just too tightly wound and you know, there's just like a a matter, you know, a certain uh Rolodex of facts that the police officer is working with that, you know, that doesn't match their facts and it you know, you get a good solid two to three minutes of just kind of like who's on first style humor. That is, I, I'm always amused by. Yeah, and there's even the moment where it translates to physicality and like 
Cary Grant and the cop like switch places and the cop is in the cell yeah. <laughs> and before he can lock him up he's like whoa 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 wait a minute you know and I love that you know the the staging of that style of dialogue like very much um, made literal there uh, and yeah it's you know maybe it doesn't move with the intensity of the first hour or so where mm-hmm. you know you're just picking up steam moving to new locations you know, less locked down camera more two shots than one shots such as in the jail there's a lot more you know single shots um, but I there the dialogue is so good in that segment it really uh, it also feels like a big sigh of relief once you get out of there and it fades back to him being in the uh the dinosaur room yeah <laughs> where you get one of the great finales i mean come on you know they're the professing of love to one another while the dinosaur collapses and he has to like swing her up in terms of classic hollywood endings it reminds me actually of safety last by harold lloyd and the mm-hmm. way that it ends with him just like swinging up onto a building uh, scared shitless to kiss a girl and then it irises in or fades out or whatever. Uh, th- this is very similar, but of course with the role reversal, uh, you know, and it's just, man, what, what an ending. What are you, you going to say about that ending? It's his whole previous life is on the floor behind him and now he is, you know, 50 feet up in the air on the scaffolding with this woman who just gave him the biggest whirlwind of a day, you know, anyone can possibly have and, there's only uh, only good things to come in the future. Oh. You know, they're on top. They're on top. I like. I like. I like that. I like to think that. That's good. Well, because you could you took you could take a pessimistic reading of it. Of course, you could say, yeah. "Well, Catherine Hepburn just broke up this marriage, and uh, the, this couple who hates each other clearly won't last very long." <laughs> but uh, you know, that's the cynical read. Maybe I'm not. No, uh, I, maybe I'm not a cynic today. I, I agree with that read, but it's just it's cool to think you know what the characters are doing after the movie ends. You know, create yeah. your own movie. A fucking multiverse Malcolm again. <laughs> hey, you're the one who's doing it. You're like in, in another, you know, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, too many hypotheticals listening to too much Simmons. Yeah. Yeah. But I, the ending is like kind of everything that's great about the movie kind of distilled into this one scene, you know, it's charming, funny, physical. And, you know, I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go first. I'm going to give this one a rating. I'm going to go four and a half bullets. <laughs> You know, I actually, I kind of remember watching this one like five years back. I just definitely liked it, but I wasn't as hot as I was other Hawks. But I, I feel like I truly recognized the brilliance of it because, you know, he, he's already a master of, of that dynamic. You know, I, you know, we were talking about of, you know, kind of uh, upending gender roles in certain ways. But I think really just the leopard antics really put it over the top. And it's one of my favorite, you know, kind of animal play movies i would say sneaky great dog performance yeah. too you know you gotta you gotta <laughs> give him his you gotta give the dog his flowers well as i agree with uh you know not to talk about fraser too much but i agree with uh, kelsey Grammer with uh you know dogs you know they're not actors they respond to commands off screen for food they're uh they're nothing but mongrels in my eyes so cute dog yeah but not, not an actor <laughs> just just wait till you see him in the awful truth i think True. Uh, I, I mean think that performance is another level he does know? get around so yeah. maybe i should shut my mouth <laughs> yeah shut your damn mouth whoa whoa whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> i didn't i didn't expect you to be so enthusiastic about that uh i'm also gonna go forward to half i love this leaving off half a star thing or half a bullet rather um i 
There's just the fact that there are probably six or seven Hawks movies that I prefer to this and the the fact that I still have a lot of Hawks to see yeah. makes me, I don't know, the way my brain works with hierarchies and stuff. It just, it, it's not quite there. It probably is, though. I mean, yeah. uh, JT. Um, yeah, I'm going five bullets. <laughs> this is one of my uh, favorite Hawks movies. I just think that, like, I don't know. It, 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 like, just writes the text for, like, the pathology of, like, the screwball comedy and so many essential elements are there, like phenomenal like performances. I feel like I know, like I don't know. It's like the like a basic like film facts like Twitter account or Instagram will like tweet this or, or post it every so often. But like that they had to stop filming because they were just dying laughing like during the movie itself. Like that energy like really comes across and oh, like yeah. how playful and fun it is, and just uh. I don't know the charm of the movies. And I feel like in some like, I don't know, understanding just just a straight a fet dude like you buy that like a woman can annoy you so much that you fall in love with her. Yeah. And like you just uh, I, I don't know. That's that's movie magic to me there. That ending where it's just like he's uh He's been worn down, like beaten up, like taken all all over. But like he kind of fucks with it. He loves it because yeah. he knows mm-hmm. uh, she wants him. But yeah, she wants Great his movie. goofy zoologist ass. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Fucking one of, bone doctor ass motherfucker. One of Cary Grant's best physical performances, I would say, uh, because he's often constrained by wardrobe, whether it's the torn pants or the 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 women's robe or any of the other kind of like not perfect fitting clothes he has to wear in the movie. He's often kind of walking bow-legged or like doing a kind of waddle. Yeah. Uh, like he only walks like a normal Cary Grant like three times probably. <laughs> He's yeah. always walking a little fucked up. There's a lot of him falling down toward the end. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a great physical performance. There's a way to play that character where it's like, almost like too goofy or it mm. feels like like a Harold Lloyd character or yeah, something yeah. but like I feel like he he finds the middle ground for that character and just plays it to the the perfect T you know doesn't lean in too much but definitely enough for a lot of comedy yeah of the screwball movies where like a man just gets domineered by a woman basically it's between uh Cary Grant and this and Henry Fonda's performance in The Lady Eve. I just watched that recently, it's, so obviously that movie's on my mind. And Fonda's a little bit more goofy. Both yeah, he's great a performances. little goofier, but he's yeah. also more just like mopey kind of. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. He's, yeah. Just like kind of a, he's just kind of a puppy dog, you know? He's like <laughs> There's a lot more like swings in that movie, too. Yeah. Like This one's kind of like a straight bullet. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and not to, not to uh, give the short shrift to Catherine Hepburn, who's, of course been given more than enough of her flowers for this movie i'm sure because it's worthwhile it's one of the great performances ever uh everyone knows that come on yeah yeah. everything that we've been talking about the movie about thematically only happens because of her performance none of the movie works on that level without a, a, a woman who can be you know on his level like that like i just yeah no it's fantastic we'll be back on extended clip soon enough. Yeah. I'll be with you in a minute, Mr. And we're back. 
on extended clip. It's Malcolm in the middle. Life is unfair. Malcolm, how's how's life been treating you, just in general? It's been it's been good. It's been all right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Eh, just making sure it's not unfair or anything like that, because you know I say that. It's honestly, perfect. it's honestly too fair. Really? Life is too fair. I, I would like say. That. I like that. Everyone's coming up. I kind of wish people. I kind of wish life was a little bit harder on me. Wow. <laughs> My friend wants a challenge. You know. Mm, careful what you wish for there. Uh, well, you know. I get what I'll get. <laughs> you know what you might get? What? You might get like a angry mob coming after you the way you've been acting Wait, lately. Wait, are you talking about the Fritz Lang film Fury? Did, Is did that I just you... hit the hardest segue of my life? <laughs> <laughs> I, I know all about that movie. The cancel culture, right? Yeah, yeah no, yeah, Fury yeah. is awesome. Fury is uh, early uh, English Fritz Lang. Um Hollywood Lang. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I just meant English language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's not he's not over there making that in the UK. Come on now. Yeah, yeah. Uh but that's just a really good movie. I don't have much to say about it for uh the the segment or anything. I just wanted to use that to get us into nineteen thirty six, uh the first year that we're going to briefly cover here um you know the obvious one would be modern times and you know we can get into it if we want to but what i I wanted to touch on for a little bit was the only son by ozu this is a you know it's a very typical ozu drama it's a very typical chamber family drama of people talking in rooms and then going outside and walking around and talking a little more and it's one of his best it's it's just um, well, what I remember the most of it is the fact that it was the first Ozu to actually affect me emotionally, and maybe it was because I had been watching him so young, and I didn't really, I, I appreciated what he was doing formally, I was like, this dude is a master, I love how this looks, but I I don't really, you know, it doesn't ball me over or whatever, and then I think, you know, I hate to be the relatability guy, but being whatever 19 and seeing this and it being this like very tender, you know, uh, mother son kind of thing, like, uh, you know, about the ch- like always with Ozu about the changing times and how the, uh, the, the strains that this puts on families and stuff like that. Uh, this one really, I, I, I hate to say it. I shed a little tear in public at this one. That's I was, good. I was horrified at that. That was the first time I had ever done that. Yeah. Like I'd cried at a movie before, but like in the comfort of my bedroom. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. we're open pu- your heart, brother. We're, we're, yeah. in, we're in public here. This is ridiculous. You're in the cinema communing and, and, with your brother, man. And these people don't even speak English. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> it's, here's the thing, though. People like people see that they're like, "Damn, this dude's like." has a rich inner like <laughs> inner mechanism in his mind like he feels things he's really empathetic but really he's crying because he can't read the subtitles yeah <laughs> it's like damn i wish i could read i'm so fucking stupid <laughs> i watch movies because i can't read <laughs> i'm i'm like vincent gallo who said he watched 40 o- i watched 40 ozu movies no subtitles i was soaking in the mise-en-scene uh, that's the type of level I'm on, okay? But really, The Only Son was just like, that's what unlocked it for me, the, um, you know, the real grand scope of it. Because you read about that when you, see, when you see, like, what's this Tokyo story all about? You know, what, what do I care? <laughs> uh, no, but like, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the actual 
relatability again uh and how everyone can relate to it in very different ways it just reminds you mm-hmm. of how over time relationships between people that you're the closest <coughs> with change due to the changing of times and the way that generations evolve and it's you know a very simple thing but there's no greater poet of the small moments of that than Ozu. Because mm-hmm. Ozu's not out here making Forrest Gump. You know, it's yeah. not like, he's like, oh, let's take you from the, the 30s to the 50s. You know, like it's not, he's not going, he's never going for any of that. Even in his films that have, you know, uh, some elided long periods of time, it's not really because he's trying to do an epic scope. All of his films have that epic scope because you always see people of different generations reacting to their environments and the relationships around others differently not to mention he is the god of uh the film form like he's a guy who just things were already established he took what he liked from what was established and he just made his own rule book and he was one of the first guys to do that there's very few people who were that singular formally that early on totally like after the form had been established uh so i mean come on if you if you like the medium, you gotta like that. Yeah, no, I mean, you know what? I do, and I do like that. I <laughs> well, thank uh, you. <laughs> I won't disagree there. A couple other movies from this time uh, era that we're covering: uh, thirty six, thirty seven, Sisters of the Gion, Little Mizaguchi. Uh, it is, you know, it is a classic Mizaguchi. As you know, you kind of just focus on a, a suffering woman and kind of watch her suffer. You know, as kind of the selfish. You know, people around her, you know, usually men, you know, kind of ruin her life, you know, and so it is a, you get, and that's, there's a lot of Mizuguchi movies like that. I think uh, Sister of the Gion was one of the first I saw and it really affected me in a way. And we got, we got another movie about the suffering, the lower depths, Jean Renoir. And there's a, there's, you know, Ron, Renoir really kind of obviously has a streak in the thirties where, you know, he kind of starts out with these big movies rules of the game and then towards the back end of the 30s uh i can't remember when grand illusion comes out but he, he just has a great stretch in the 30s to 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 be short and uh lower deaths is like you know it's a pretty simple kind of drama that focuses on a flop house and kind of like the in the inner workings of it you know the political uh you know game that goes on in the flop house and kind of you know just focuses on characters you know and what these characters do within the flop house it's a uh, some real good stuff jt anything else you want to hit on on the 30s before we jump to timeline b and 2002 um yeah i feel like i don't know yeah i guess it wouldn't have come up yet but i wanted to just hit up some uh cartoons because i feel like we're in a prime era uh, for like cartoon shorts. Oh, I uh, think I know what you're going to say too. Into the 40s. Uh, no, Eddie, it's not Little Buck Cheezer from 1937. <laughs> <laughs> is it, it is I Love to Sing a by yes. Tex Avery from 1936. <laughs> I feel like uh, this just like, I, I don't know, re- like it reflects a lot of what I love about early animation that just like does it 
I don't know. It's it does it right across the board. Like I think the way one like the the owl being of course Owl Jolson. I feel like the way <laughs> they incorporate like cultural references into these early shorts are really funny and like not subtle at all. But like if like a child is watching it, would not be necessarily aware of and just like I think in watching like early animated films. I love how they're connected to music so intently and that all the motions will be timed out right and so precise. I feel like you see a lot of that in early like uh, Silly Symphonies, stuff like that. But it's present here. And I'm it, Tex Avery is just like the all-time animator for me in my book. And I love to sing a, I think is, a, I don't know, just a, a pretty early banger of his. Yeah, no, I I adore. I love to sing. Uh, I I rewatched that one a few times in the last uh, like six months, actually. <laughs> uh, and then I, uh, you know, a little uncle corner here. Uh, I tried nice. to show. Uh, my, I've tried to show my niece and nephews Looney Tunes probably five times now, and they eat every time. It's a violent reaction. It is just like no, like Dang. I don't like this. Like, uh, and I love to sing. A was one of them. And I was like, you wow. really? You don't like the little owl? You know, I love to sing. A. <laughs> come on now they like they're it's not 3d yeah not, it's not 3d pixar the, you, the moms don't have huge jugs you true. know everyone needs to be fucking stacked for a kid to watch <laughs> for a kid to watch it they gotta be just hey just like me pixar style bro. Pix, pixar style. <laughs> uh anything else for the 30s or can we hit 2002 let's fa- let's fast forward i already mentioned the awful truth during the Bring True, up baby yeah. review masterpiece. Watch it. Two thousand and two. We've talked about a couple of these. Movies. I was looking at our list. Reflections like, of Evil. We've talked Ken about like Park. fucking seven two thousand two movies <laughs> <Yeah>. or something. <laughs> it is kind of mm. crazy, but I think one that really deserves to uh, you know go down in history, if you will. <laughs> Uh, other than the ones that we've done full episodes on, including Femme Fatale, In the Darkness of Time, Reflections of Evil, uh, Ken Park. Do we do another one other than that? I don't know. Uh, but one of them is going to be Friday Night by Claire Denis. This is maybe my favorite Claire Denis film after Beau Travai. Uh Some days I like it more just because of the general vibe of it is something that's more suited to why I like Claire Denis. Uh, Botravai is, you know, the the vibe of it is amazing, of course. Um, and I hate that I just said vibe like five times in a minute. <laughs> uh, but the the feeling of it there is we go. great, of course. Uh, but the, the milieu that I oh. prefer Denis in is the ones that feel a little maybe closer to her, uh, her own experiences, the ones about women dating. Like, I think that women in relationships, rather, or dating or going out with their friends, you know, like Friday night is so seductive in its style. You get Vincent Landon, who is, of course, from uh, both sides of the blade in a much more mature role in a much more mature relationship with the lead character. Uh, but, you know, He's 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 swinging his swag around in this one too, uh, but uh, yeah, no. Friday night is just like, it's a movie that the first time I watched it, I was like half asleep. Uh, I put it on at like 10 p.m., maybe even on a Friday night, if we're being Ooh, honest. Perfect time. Uh, yeah, feeling like the literal film watcher, uh, and I was just like, it 
it was one of the best half asleep viewings you could ask for. And mm-hmm. then I fell asleep by the end and I had to like, I just restarted it kind of the next morning. Yeah. Uh, but it really has this dreamy feeling of a night remembered or maybe even a night that you can't remember because uh, there were some things going through your mind and body, you know? Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I just, I think it's a stellar film. So would you say that this is Claire Denis version of, I hope they serve beer in hell <laughs> or bridesmaids. Sorry. Yes. Nice. <laughs> what about you guys? No, you know, here's, here's a sleeper. We, we have talked about a lot of, uh, a lot of Larry Clark movies from around bullies. one. So it's right around the corner. Ken park. Oh, two. I want to shout out another one from around this time called Teenage Caveman from uh, O2. Definitely a much more slept on Larry Clark. Definitely a much more low budget movie than uh, the previous two listed. But it's one that uh, is, you know, juggling a lot of balls, so to speak. Uh, Like uh, it's, you know, the plot of it is kind of like these teens caught in like a post apocalyptic wasteland in the future. And you know, caveman's kind of transported to it, but like the, a lot of the movie kind of has like this reality TV real world type style to it. And it's kind of less about, um, kind of, you know, the stakes that I've listed and more about like these kind of teens hanging out, but like kind of in this reality TV show aesthetic while also that stuff kind of looms in the background. And, you know, it's definitely, uh, a movie that is, I don't know. It's very interesting. Clark's the God of teens hanging out. <laughs> Obviously no one has a better eye for teens hanging out. than old LC pause, uh, pause, pause, but press play on teenage caveman. That's, that's what I say. Um, and then another one from the time, I feel like, you know, there's a lot of movies we've covered from around this time, but give a couple shout outs. Uh, Malibu's most wanted very like, a uh, good time capsule yes. and I, I think a good companion piece to Bullworth. Any fan, any person who's a fan of Bullworth, this is like if they made Bullworth five years later, cause that's what it is basically. And, and if you want the, uh, <laughs> race, I'll just say the racism of Bullworth with uh, the bad rom-com vibes of the early 2000s. Watch the Steve Martin uh, vehicle bringing down the house. Ooh, I do from watch 2003, that. co-starring Queen Latifah, which I did see with my mom in the theaters. Um, there's a uh, there's a joke about uh, Iraq, the country, because this was, of course, during the War on Terror and. Uh, uh, a mix-up between the country and saying Iraq, like a nice pair of, you know, oh. a nice set. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah, uh, that, that was a big joke for me, because I, I got that. That was, like, <laughs> that was one of the only ones I got when I watched it. I miss, like, eye humor, like like iPod, iPad. Oh. I paid. I paid for you to have the iPad and the iPod. I'll, but, like, you know, I blank. I'm into that type of humor. Uh, we've talked about like all the best 2003 movies on this podcast already. Kalho, Naho, Elephant, Stuck on You, Goodbye Dragon Inn, Los Angeles Plays Itself. Running out of time. JT, do you have any Something's from Something's Gotta Give. Oh, yeah, um, just, just one little shout out uh, to Autofocus. Um, I feel like we haven't, we never done a Schrader on the podcast. That's crazy. Um, yeah, but Autofocus is one of my favorite. I feel like that's not 
necessarily not like a consensus opinion. I just am really compelled by the Bob Crane story in particular, mm-hmm. just like a weird sitcom about German POW camps, like the main star in that like dies in like a weird pervert sex murder. And Schrader just takes that material and hits the ground running. I And I feel like just like I haven't seen hardcore, but I feel like it's in a similar like moralizing tone and just sort of like the mm-hmm. depraved, frightening nature of sex is definitely the angle Schrader takes here, which I don't like necessarily agree with. But I think it's interesting to see how he takes this story and just sort of goes with it. And like, I love one element I love about the film is how like the formal style just becomes like grimier and more abstracted throughout as crane falls into this weird perverse world. And, uh, Kinnear is giving an amazing, like he does like squeaky clean kind of asshole very well. And then just like paired with Defoe, I think uh, you get a lot of like really funny bits. Like I, I don't know. There's a scene where they're just like watching the porn that they had recorded together, and they're just like jacking off, but you can't see them like beat. Like it's <laughs> so like difficult to notice. You can't see them beating their meat, but you can see like the hand motion like of them doing it in the scene, and that just has me dying like every time. But yeah. uh yeah. That movie, Good pre- movie predicted the the future of goon caves and whatnot, you know. <laughs> um but I I love how like Defoe kind of pedals his smut making agenda just by ha- being one of the few to have a uh, like a, a home camera, you know what I mean? Yeah, a video yeah. camera. And I kinda love how those are like intertwined together. Yeah. Very very funny movie. Um, real quick before we end the segment. I just I'm looking at 2003 and I have this whole thing is just like half movies we've done on the podcast, which we've done maybe 12 2003 movies. Insane. We've still, done. Yeah. I, I'm going to run through 2003. This is the most of any. It has to be Los Angeles plays itself. Goodbye, Dragon Inn. Stuck on you, which was part of our fairly a thon uh, elephant. Call ho naho. Something's got to give. House of a Thousand Corpses, Cafe Lumiere, uh, the saddest music in the world, Head of State. Wow. So many great episodes for you to listen to. We really like the early 2000s, I think. I don't know. I don't know what it is. But that's. Oh, and the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Thank you, Ethan Vespi, for bringing that one on. There's so many like in. There's like 04, 01. There's a lot too. You know what I mean? Yeah. But. I wanted to real quick um, because the other half of movies that I've seen from 2003 are romantic comedies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wanted to do like an expanded version of the Armand White better than Ooh, uh, I'm okay. just going to do just like real quick. So I would say, but it's going to be reversed because I'm working my way up kind of. Uh, but I'll say that how to lose a guy in 10 days. That's probably the pits. Uh, so bringing down the house is better than that. Uh, just married with Brittany Murphy mm. and Ashton Kutcher is a little better than that. It's still dog shit. Like we're still in the dog food territory. Um, anything else by Woody Allen is better than that, but it's still very bad. It's the one with uh, uh, what's his name, Biggs. Mr. Biggs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> with Christina Ricci and Mr. Biggs himself. Uh, that one is still very bad, but it's better than those two. 
Uh, Intolerable Cruelty is better than that. Now we're in good movie territory. Better than that is Down With Love by Peyton Reed. Now, this is a high recommendation for people who don't know about this movie. Down With Love is Peyton Reed's film, his follow-up to Bring It On. You know, that was a massively successful uh, cheerleader comedy. So he got to go as hard as he wanted to, making a stylized, old-school romantic comedy that reminds you of the screwballs, but really of the late screwballs. It's more... Um, man's favorite sport pillow talk than his girl Friday totally, uh, bringing yeah. up baby and using Technicolor to its advantage. So that's awesome. But something's got to give is even better. Oh, yeah. That's old Jack. Old Jack up to his old tricks. Come Nothing on better. now. Um, but that's all for this segment. So uh, we'll be right back and I'll leave you with, let's see, uh, Henry Rollins uh, saying something from Bad Boys 2. Wow. All right, TNT, for the millionth time, listen up. Since 9-11, we've gone high-tech over the water so the dope runners have gone low. Our source says the biggest shipment of Exxon Record is coming in tonight, and we want to know who's behind it. Hopefully in a few hours, we'll have our answer. Come to come. He's like, stop. Yeah, telling you to, he's Tim Allen's looking a little bit more. I don't know, man. He's a shady character. Tim Allen is a shady character. You heard it here first from his foremost auteurist critic. <laughs> Tim Allen. Yeah, yeah I'm really yeah. into Tim Allen. What is it? Crazy on the outside? We yeah, did that. Dude, we did that one. That, you can look up the files on that one. We'll, we'll take that episode down. We're back on Extended Clip, talking about Tropical Malady here in Timeline B of the Extended Clip reunion tour on the bus as we travel back and forth through time. Yeah, People forget that we're on a bus. Mm -hmm. We haven't talked about it in a few months because we're just so used to it. People's favorite bit that we're on a bus. It's not a bit. (laughs) Well, it's, it's a bit to keep bringing it up, but it's also true so. that we're... Um, I guess anything's a bit if you talk like that. <laughs> true. Well, I'm just malady. so tired of van life that I really hate every time we bring it up. I'm done <laughs> living like with you guys. Like yeah. I just want it to be over. Can we stop talking about how we rented out the bank bus <laughs> and are living in it and have been traveling across the country <laughs> podcasting? I'm so fucking sick of it. Yo, this, the bank bus nasty as fuck too. <laughs> Low key. There are some stains that just don't come out. You know, it's it's a fact of you life. You can tell that evil's gone on in this bus. Tropical Malady is a film by a pitch pong where Seth cool from 2004. I mentioned earlier that he was. Probably the best director to debut in the 21st century. I mean, he he, he barely squeaks in there in 2000 with a Mysterious Object at noon. But the run of this film, Blissfully Yours, Syndromes in a Century, which we've talked about on the podcast and is a masterpiece, and uh, Cemetery of Splendor, and uh, Uncle Boon Me, of course, and most recently Memoria, he is just truly on another level, but not in a way that I would say is like a linear progression. It's he, he almost like plateaued here at tropical malady and hasn't really fallen off or anything like that. Yeah. He just like, it's, he is stout. I think blissfully yours is a film that 
it, it's his proper narrative debut. You know, uh, if, if you've seen his debut, Mysterious Object, it's a very interesting film. Um, it's it's kind of a game of a film, though. He's he's kind of doing structuralism, if you will. Uh, but it, Blissfully Yours is his first kind of romantic film that gazes at nature the same way it does at romance. And uh, then Tropical Malady expands that to get to the more ethereal realm uh, and these ancient tales. Uh, if you don't know, Tropical Malady is a film that's split into two parts. The first half is a uh, very simple romance you know, between King, uh, the soldier, and uh, Tong, who is on a farm where he was. Uh, the soldier was helping out, you know. And Tong lives with his family on this farm, uh, and they have this, you know, very playful, seductive, uh, youthful young adult, you know, uh, romance, and it's mm-hmm. very sweet. And uh, the a pitchet Pong shoots it very lovingly. Uh, there's more handheld in this than a lot of his other films. Uh, you know, when they go into the city at one point and are walking around together and the handheld's following them and the song that played over the very beginning comes back uh, into the soundtrack and it is, you know, just, it's unlike anything else he did. It fits more into the, you know, maybe uh, East Asian art house early 2000s vibe like a Hu Shao Shen style needle drop you know yeah, in that yeah, moment totally. uh, but it, it totally works wonders there and uh, I, I really adore this film for its use of you know using as much kind of pop juice in the first half as he can muster out of his art house self in order to let the audience accept the second half for what it is. And, you know, those moments are, you know, explosive too, you know and yeah. I mean? They're very, uh, you know, it really, like you said, adds a jump to everything because I, I, I enjoy, you know, kind of the relationship we see here. Cause it's, it's very, you know, it's not even clearly defined, you know what I mean? It's kind of a, one that's a little bit abstracted, you know, a little bit of a more art housey, will they, won't they yeah. type action. And it's cause it is it, mostly what you see is just them going kind of doing various activities, going cave dwelling, yeah. going, uh, to the movies, you know, taking, uh, you know, riding on the motorcycle. It, it, it's kind of more of a, you know, just see them share these moments and, you know, kind of a pitch upon, uh, you know, going a little bit more tender with it, but still not, still not clearly defining anything to where, you know, you're still kind of, you know, uh, on your feet, so to speak. JT, had you, had you seen this film before? Uh, I had not seen this before. This was my first time and I loved it like right away, but I, uh, yeah, no, those are all just things that the types of hanging out that we all do. And at first I was just like, uh. these are just a couple of straight fellas. But, uh, no, the obviously that comes. I, I did, I did have that thought. Like once they go to the movie theater and you know, it, it's, you know, you get some grabbing going on. Yeah. It is, it is there. There are definitely some people who were not watching so closely being like, whoa, okay, this is what's going on. Okay. <laughs> but, no, I like uh obviously like the like the romantic elements are like so apparent and just the way I mean the style itself and like Eddie you were talking about like comparing like the romantic relationship to like a re- relationship with like the natural world and with nature and there are so many moments where those two intersect in just 
just powerful ways that I feel like capture like feelings of love and like memory. Like one moment early on um, in them being together uh, is them like just sitting out like underneath like I don't know what you would call it, but like that it's not like a building, but they, they it's the a, like it's awning a, kind of thing, like an awning, yeah, in the rain. And, like, if it wasn't for the subtitles, I don't – I mean, like, obviously, like, I can't speak the language. But, like, the rain at a certain point is, like, almost overpowering them. And you can just sort of, like, barely make out the conversation. But then it just, like – he goes full rain and, like, cuts back uh, to the longer – to the wide. And uh, it just, like – I don't know. I feel like that's a very, like – potent feeling he catches there just like a moment with your lover in the rain i mean it honestly like at the time like reminded me of the little uh inherent flashback that you get but there's just something and i mean the way he uses sound throughout the movie to various effects is impressive but i don't know you just get little moments of beauty that make the first half so delightful you know, JT, you saying that it reminded you of the Inherent Vice flashback is uh, really on the money because both of those are like the romanticism of memory, you know, because if you think about it later in this first half, they return to that spot when it's not raining and they're more established as you know, whatever they are, uh, like they've at least fooled around a little or whatever and uh um, Tong's mom finds the the love note in his pocket, you know, and they're they're more open a, a bit. Uh, and they even reference the scene where they went back and talk about the clash tape that he gave him. And uh, you know, I'm not gonna repeat the line; it's too yeah. corny for me to say out loud. But it's it's nice; it's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think both of these, uh, like whether it's the inherent vice flashback. Uh, which is much more dramatic and, you know, one of my favorite scenes ever, but that reigning uh, scene than when you see it in the present day, it's of course the, the big golden fang building and the bright sun. Uh, and then in this one, the second time they don't have like the secrecy and the will they won't they of the first half is gone. The romance of the rain is gone. The, the gesture of like trying something by giving this guy uh, a, a tape of the clash is gone. Now they're like, actually you know whatever together for this couple means mm-hmm. uh it, and it so it really is like that initial scene becomes the memory that you're supposed to kind of cherish for this like this is the couple's like you know big moment is that the way that anderson uses that scene in the rain as the essential you know doc and shasta coupling moment mm-hmm. well you mentioned like that like obviously like the the tropical melody like obviously like is sort of alighting the drama and just like that obviously that isn't present there where like it I don't know they're two different types of films but like I love how tropical melody in the first half is sort of like skipping over like traditional moments of like narrative tension like mm-hmm. you get a little bit like when like you see Tong's mother like open that note and you could obviously take this in a totally different, like much more conventional direction where 
like, oh, like the mother is upset, like about like the like finding out like her son is like gay potentially or whatever. And in this, like, it's not it, there's no question of that. It's just she accepts them and just hangs out with them, like palling around a little bit. And I feel like that's just it allows you just you to focus on the beauty. And I feel like there's enough drama in that moment where the two part and there's that absence there that I feel like that it makes it more powerful and also more true to life because it's like you end a relationship with someone you love very intensely or at the very least like have uncertain feelings for at the end and you only remember good things like it's just Mm. only that focus on the positive. Yeah, no, I mean, the more we talk about it like this, it really does seem like memory, which has been, you know, a theme throughout a Pitchapong's work. And, of course, uh, invoking his own memories of growing up uh, throughout his work and, you know, things like uh, Cemetery of Splendor, which is, you know, about like the memories and consciousness of these like soldiers that are asleep or whatever mm-hmm. <laughs> or people that are asleep. And, uh, you know, of course, Memoria. Look at the title. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I, I think that, yeah, you're really keying into something major about the relationship. And the, this this first half has so many layers to it. And the thing is, half of the layers are the juxtapositions to the second. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, there's a few more things that are amazing in it. Like there's the scene where they go watch that old lady sing and... <laughs> Tog just like he's like into it for a while then he just goes up and grabs another mic and duets with her (laughs) very awesome very nice very touching (laughs) couple of pitchapog trademarks there's the uh people doing the aerobics dancing choreographed outside at one point uh there's also a hospital scene because all of his movies you know are about kind of this trifecta between you know spirituality and nature and uh you know, hospitals and medicine because he grew yeah. up in hospitals. Like, you know, syndromes in a century is all about that. And it kind of keys you into that running through all of his work uh, and how, you know, often how either human relationships or someone's interpersonal struggle works with all of these three factors. Um, so there is the hospital scene that's brief. Uh, I, I guess it's because of the dog's tumor, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But just the fact that this shot is an over the shoulder of a character leering into the room kind of is just so evocative of this is a pitch upon growing up his parents working in a hospital him looking in at what they're doing kind of it's yeah. it's just perfect for that narrative thread that runs through all of his movies yeah and to speak of the narrative i kind of like you know even the scenes you know they don't like in the first half they don't really have much even like relation to each other besides that you know these are moments shared by this couple. And, you know, I think that's what's so potent with, um, you know, the, 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 the less, uh, emphasis on beginnings and endings. Like I love, you know, this relationship does come to, uh, you know, I guess a somewhat of an end with kind of like that last moment with the motorcycle and how that kind of transition that, you know, crazy transition with the pop music, you know, into, you know, all the soldiers riding in the back of the truck. And I think, uh, I don't know, like the 
I, I like that emphasis, you know, no hellos or goodbyes, just the good stuff. Exactly. And one, maybe the best stuff is uh, when <laughs> Tog's mom goes with them, like through the cave. I yeah. love that. The, the cave hike that they take, just these insane camera angles, like low light, flashlight lit, you know, uh, and then you get out of there and who do they go see? But like, I guess Tong's aunt who runs a convenience store who sells loose cigarettes and grows her own nugs that she offers them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just always die at that. Every time I've seen that movie, she's just very insistent. She's like, you want weed? I, I grew it myself. It's fresh buds. It's, yeah. It's I, was still, <laughs> I love the line. It's like, oh yeah, I love soldiers. My, my sister would always take them home or <laughs> yeah. something like that. Classic humor. Look, the, all of his movies are super funny. It's like yeah. it, you have to give yourself over to the pacing and the way that he approaches the, the form of filmmaking. And you're you're going to not only have a narratively fulfilling time, you're going to laugh a little too. But it puts it puts a lot of emphasis on those moments. It makes yeah. those moments which, you know, in a movie that's maybe more tightly wound in a different way, you know, would just be a nice little, you know, and bringing up baby in a pitch a pong joke yeah. would be one of a thousand and it, you know, it'd be good or whatever, but <laughs> you know, it, it, you know, you have maybe five jokes and, and, and like, exactly. uh, like, you know, the way like, um, in the movie when he puts his hand on his leg and then the guy kind of traps him there and kind of yeah. does some weird squiggly, you know, uh, yeah. you know, jerkation action, you know, it's, it's, a uh, it's just funny, it, physical yeah. rom-com humor. Kinda. And, but strikes a lot of different chords at, at once yeah. too. Um, so the first half ends as, uh, you know, as you described, they have that hand licking scene. Yeah, little licking. Uh, yeah, and then it goes into pure music video mode uh, with Kang riding around on the motorcycle. It's awesome. Back to the soldiers where we started. Uh, by the way, we didn't mention the opening of this is the soldiers finding a these soldiers that, you know, uh, Kang's one of them finding a dead body uh in the forest and gathering around to take a picture with it <laughs> like it's the catch of the day yeah uh and then just to hit this real quick yeah it, it, and then we see the soldiers walk away one of them is chatting on a two-way radio with like some sort of phone sex operator or something like that they lose signal as he requests a song that the lady, I guess, requests to the radio. And then right as the needle drop hits, the camera starts moving uh, like it, with a tracking shot, you know, forward uh, toward the just where the people were walking and now is just nature. And it's just such a great way to open because then it cuts to another wide shot and you just see a naked guy walk across the frame. <laughs> and it's kind of hinting at what's to come in the second half. So I do you want to talk yeah, about the I second half? Yeah, I forgot about the naked. Yeah, the naked guy appears in the... I forgot about that. Thanks for reminding me. Well, also me. in the intro, yeah. you know, you have that first like hieroglyphic art that uh, has the story explained a little bit. Yeah. And it says that all of us are by nature wild beasts. Our job as humans is to become trainers who keep their animals in check and even train them to do tasks alien to their bestiality. <laughs> so, you know, it's about reining in your animal instincts, kind of. Uh, so then we're going to get really animal-like. And uh, the second half is called A Spirit's Path. And it is crazy. 
Um, you know, you know that sleeping and the dream world are going to kind of take a part here. There's a, there's a little bit of that. There's a little bit of, uh, you know, mysticism where we're outside of the realm of quote unquote reality. Yeah. We're, we're in the realm of a shape shifting shaman. Uh, and the shape shifting shaman is our boy Tong. Uh, when he's in human form and uh, Kang is a soldier, but he's, is he the same soldier? We don't really know for sure if it's a different kind of story. Uh, you know, we, the only real, like even subtitled dialogue uh, for the first like 40 minutes of this segment is a baboon. Yeah. <laughs> like that's all you get is a baboon speaking to him. Uh, and you know, it's, just like a crazy surreal hunting kind of thing for a while mm-hmm. and then becomes something so much more than that when uh you know the soldier seems to uh really understand the stakes uh on a metaphysical level of what he's dealing with yeah no it, i mean it really is some striking stuff and you know i think when i first watched this movie this half kind of took me aback cuz i didn't i didn't quite you know I was using my analytical mind and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't even quite sure what to make of it, but just from like a formal, interesting level, kind of spending a lot of these times lurking around and, you know, in these dark woods is, I mean, it's such a, a crazy milieu and you kind of have to surrender yourself to, you know, what's going on. And I, I think your patience is definitely rewarded with, you know, kind of a, a crazy uh, face-off at the end, so yeah. to speak. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, you're not going to, like, I don't know. It's good, obviously, to have an analytical mind with a movie like this, but you're not going to go into this for, like, a tropical malady explained-like <laughs> uh, mindset. And But I do think, like, I don't know, even, like, with a little with what we were talking about with the first half, I think it's just such, like, a novel trick to take like this very like so, the first half that feels like such a delightful little romantic memory and then take it where it's like the two lovers like actively against each other in like enacting like uh i don't know just a, a very strange folk story and even there there are layers of like the conflict becoming like what uh, the elements of like a romantic relationship are with the mm-hmm. whole giving their spirit and flesh and memories to another being there it like i don't know the the tiger shaman and the soldier i feel like have a very directly like antagonistic relationship at first but then it evolves into something that i feel like it's just like harder to grasp. It just becomes harder to grasp there. And I feel like that relates to the way in which like your relationship to a partner may evolve and change. And, and, and it's, it's like, you know, watching syndromes in a century before, you know, it's, it's almost kind of feels like, you know, in very different ways, but we're kind of seeing, you know, two love stories from two very different angles as, you know, the beginning it feels very modern. It's what was, you know, kind of going on at the time. And then this kind of takes it to the realm of kind of almost like the ancient, kind of like the, almost like, this is almost like a tale you would hear someone tell, like folklore or oral history, so to speak. And like kind of, uh, 
I don't know. I, I think a pitcher pong's uh, given us a lot here by serving it to us two ways. Oh, so to to go back to what we were talking about with memory, you know, uh, I guess the I think it's the baboon who refers to the shape shifting shaman who is currently a, a tiger as a creature of life who only exists through memories of others. Yeah. So that kind of, you know, hits the nail on the head there. Um, but yeah, that final kind of showdown that we have, you know, it lasts a long time, which is weird to say because time really is hard to gauge in this half. You know, the first half, at le- even if it has like art house pacing, at least like you can see where scenes begin and end. Totally. Uh, it kind of et- guess how long scenes are kind of. This is just like one just... 50 minute bullet kind of it's crazy um but that final kind of lengthy showdown the tiger is just on this perch on a on a tree with the soldier kneeled and there's just a lot of like shot reverse shot and uh and then also cutaways to you know different parts of their environments and then a cut to this hieroglyph hieroglyphic thing of like you know this like red connection coming from the tongue of the tiger to the the soul of the man uh and then just cuts kind of the trees and the camera's like swinging back and forth and you just know that like nature is doing its thing in that moment and then the movie's over yeah and it's it's such a stunner i just every time i watch it i've seen it probably three times now and i just every time it completely stuns me i really uh you know not to say I don't know what to do with the ending because it's pretty clearly just like a, a metaphorical extension of the first half, kinda. Uh, but it's just <laughs> I don't. There's nothing else that feels like it. Well, yeah. I mean, I feel like even movies that you know would do something like that, they don't go so abstract as yeah. this one does. You know, and I, I, I'm not gonna lie. I still I felt this when I first watched it, and I definitely enjoyed it a lot, lot more this time. This movie does still kind of feel maybe somewhat above my head in a way where like I'm not exactly connecting to it as as deeply as I do maybe some of his other movies but like it's above my head but I'm I'm looking up and I'm giving it you know my full undivided attention that doesn't mean I I like it less but it's like I I don't I know this is my podcasting job but it's it's hard for me to give a proper analysis of it i would say no i get yeah, you yeah, i yeah. mean it's mainly just about the connections between the first and the second and yeah how these typical apichapong themes run through all of them and for me it's up there with his best i still probably prefer syndromes in a century um but it's a five bullet one for me for sure what about yeah i'm going five bullets with this a pitcher pong is such a master like you don't see filmmaking this like assured with like the juice behind it to actually back it up like doing something like this that like at the first half being like significantly more straightforward and then just like abstracting out your ideas to just a story that feels beyond place and time is just so powerful and I feel like deepens the resonance of the first half and uh, I don't know just a, a pitch pong will always uh, leave me thinking I wanna I uh, I don't know I was just thinking about shaman while watching the second half and it's just like I would love to be I want to be a shaman for cinema and uh, <laughs> like uh, 
if I if I take in things like tropical malady, I feel like it's it enhances my cosmic knowledge and my and uh, <laughs> nice. I, I'm if uh, I don't know if Pitchpong keeps making films, I'm on the right path. If a film can enhance your cosmic knowledge, there's like no way you can't give it a five bullet rating. Almost. Yeah, it's like yeah. J- JT, I don't want to. You know, I'll set you up here. What what would a cinematic shaman do? What 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 would you think your role would be? Would it be similar to like the tiger in Tropic Malady? Um, yeah, probably like murdering cows. Like I don't live in a I don't live in an area with a lot of cows, so I'd probably be like killing cats and like stray dogs and things like that. Okay, cool. And then also like- recommending movies. Like you go into like the deep dark part of a city. Like maybe Ooh. like a goodbye Dragon Inn style like abandoned theater, yeah. And there's the sh- the like because soon theaters will be totally done. So, but yeah. then like in the abandoned theater that hasn't been turned in, into like a an Amazon grocery yet, um, there's the cinema shaman hidden, and you've been Ooh. you've been on the trail of a man killing stray cats, and then you encounter the cinema shaman, and he gives you. A little piece of a 35 millimeter reel and uh it it helps you on the path as well on your own way i I think that's a good rule for the cinematic shaman like you go you go to a movie you know by yourself or there's not many people there but there's always the cinematic shamans in the back row he's always there he's always (laughs) watching he's watched more than you could ever will and listen to him he's got a lot of knowledge i feel like a damon packard is a cinematic shaman because I always oh, seen him on, on Facebook going to like going to like the ten forty five showing of uh, <laughs> Megan or whatever. No one's here, you know what I mean. One of those nights, I'm gonna just not even think about it, and then Packard's gonna be in the back of the theater. Um, I give this one four bullets. I liked it a lot. I like the idea of uh, the cinematic shaman kind of being like the new hot thing in rep cinema. Ooh. Like everyone's like, dude, did you, have you gotten an invite to the shaman? Like, have you, do you know his address? <laughs> and then he's, he just gets like, someone finally gets so jealous and hears all the bad rumors that they write the expose about how Ooh. the cinematic shaman kills cats and dogs. And unfortunately it is. Well, true. he's also <laughs> naked. At, he's also naked at all the screenings. <laughs> You didn't yeah. include that part, but I think it is probably uh, essential. I, I've I've definitely in my head like I should start doing like You've rep. Been picturing JT naked this whole time in your head. <laughs> Picture I, I don't have to imagine. I got, um, but um, but uh, what do you call it? I I've I've thought about doing like rep cinema bits, and this would just you guys would have to kill me because I'd, be, I'd I'd have become the biggest loser I could become. But uh, like wearing like uh, <laughs> like masks. <laughs> Like elaborate masks to screenings, or like uh, the the happy you just actor come with ma- a big staff, <laughs> like a Phantom of the Opera type deal, like going to like new Bev screenings with like the, like the uh, Groucho Marx uh, mustache with the glasses. <laughs> I think, but I'm thinking like scary eyes wide shut style <laughs> okay. masks, or like or like old style like the half laughing, half crying. Oh, actor. the two dramatic faces. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Kind of yes. get like Common maybe tragedy. a, a two face little action there. Like I, I just. I, I kind of want to start wearing masks, elaborate masks. Wear a Harvey Two-Face mask. Harvey Two, yeah, there you go. Do movie characters. <laughs> I mean, if you wear any movie costume to the movies, they can't turn you away. True, true. I'm, that is, that is. you have to might have to show up to the box office, buy your ticket, and then slip into the theater and put on your mask. 
if a box office worker tries to turn away a man just because he's dressed as Chris Kyle. <laughs> I wasn't you don't even... understand. I'm a cinema shaman. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like your idea of doing movie character, but I was thinking just more classical, yeah. undefined classical masks. costumes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The New Orleans style mask. <laughs> exactly. But like kind of scary looking. I think it'd be cool. Get some wooden masks from the, yeah. the Kabuki, other continents. Kabuki masks. <laughs> that would, that's kind of more what I'm going for. <laughs> well, uh, that's about it for extended clip this week. Um, we will be back uh, next time to talk about uh, Hell's a Poppin' and Spike Lee's best film. The original Kings of Comedy. Oh. No, it's not. Come on. Uh, yeah. But a great film. And uh, we're going to be talking about it with our old buddy, Palma. I'm excited. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. So we will see you next time. Goodbye. limits to what a man can bear. And besides that, tomorrow afternoon I'm going to get married. <laughs> what for? Well, because... Be <laughs> well, anyway, I'm going to get married, Susan, and don't interrupt. No. Come to come. Because I just went gay all of a sudden. <laughs> What shouldn't I do? Talk while someone's shooting. Yes, well, anyway, I forgive boys. you because I got a good shot. But you don't understand. See, there it is, right next to the pin. But that has nothing to do with it. Oh, you are you playing through? No, I've just driven off the first tee. And I, I see you're a stranger here. You should be over there. This is the 18th fairway, and I'm right on the green. Yes, if I think this part, I'm going to beat my record. <laughs> I mean, what is the, what is the golf swing by Roy McAvoy? Well, I tend to think of the golf swing as a poem. Oh, he's doing that poetry thing again. Critical opening phrase of this poem will always be the grip. Which the hands unite to form a single unit by the simple overlap of the little finger. Come to come. Slowly and slowly. Club head is led back, pulled into position, not by the hands, but by the body, which turns away from the target. Right side.